Yeah, it's it's really nice. There, there have been some people on both ends of that. They come up here and they expect like a really big masher buck, a four by four is kind of how we measure. Some people really get into inches and whatnot, but you're looking for a nice four by four with eye guards. That's kind of an indication that you got a really nice buck or a three by three. So some people get flown into these lakes and shooting a deer isn't a big problem. It's just getting that magnum or that large, that large deer, that trophy buck that people sometimes have to sort through a little bit. You know, filling the tag doesn't tend to be a huge issue. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sam Weaver, host of today's Tipsy Tuesday, a short segment covering rockslide.com tidbits, hunting news from across the West, with just a sprinkling of tips and tricks to keep you well informed for your next adventure. Here's a few announcements. The Rockslide photo contest is closed for mule deer, elk, and sheep, but remains open for youth photos and for this year's big whitetail bucks. Pick your best photo and get it submitted today. Alaska's draw closes on December 15th. If you're not thinking about hunting Alaska yet, today's guest just might change your mind. Fantastic writer and longtime Rockslide contributor, Jeff Lunn is joining us to shed a little light on putting in for Alaska's draw. And if you don't draw, he's going to give us a little over-the-counter opportunities available. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Let's jump right into it. You're a longtime Alaska resident. Tell us a little bit about where you are up there and kind of what you do. Moved up to uh, Southeast Alaska, Prince of Wales Island when I was five. My parents moved up from Colorado. Uh, now I live and teach in Ketchikan. Pretty much same area of the state, but different units. So I grew up in unit two, which is really popular for black-tailed deer and for black bear. I now live in unit one, which is southern and southeast Alaska in the Ketchikan area. A lot of fun. Try to get as out, outside as much as, as, I, as I can, hunt, fish, and just do it all. I uh, teach, write, and uh, do a podcast. Nice. I'm going to have to check out your podcast. It's called uh, On Step Alaska. Sounds awesome. I'm going to check it out. Uh, I know there's a lot of opportunities in Alaska. Let's go right into the draw. Um, deadline is December 15th at 5 p.m. Alaska Standard Time. What else do we need to know going into the draw? I would just anticipate not drawing. But if you're going to go to Alaska and you have the money saved, just have a hunt in mind that you want to do. And so either if you draw the caribou tag that you want, you're going to make that happen. If you don't draw, look for an over-the-counter opportunity and just do the same thing. You know, I think we get so caught up in whether or not I draw or not, but if you really want to come to Alaska, look for a backup option because there's so many over-the-counter tags that you can get or registration tags. Just look for one of those. So I think that'd be my main thing. If you want to make Alaska happen, don't depend on the draw. If you do draw, you'd make it happen. So if you don't draw, find an over-the-counter opportunity as like a backup and be ready to go. Yeah, I think you make a great point. $150 for a non-resident Alaska license you have to purchase before you go into the draw. And so once you make that purchase, mm -hmm. you know, you're good for the year if you want to swing over try and do you know one of these over-the-counter opportunities we're going to talk about a little bit later and the other thing that i noticed about alaska that's a different than a lot of places uh you get six choices for every species 
-hmm. which seems like a lot. But also in Alaska, you can put all six choices in for the same hunt code if you want. So if there's something you really want to do, you can burn all six choices on that hunt code, which I find very interesting. Still very affordable compared to other states, or at least it's on par uh, to other states. And then, yeah, your applications, you can put all your money into like one mountain goat tag that you want to draw or one uh, doll sheep tag or, or one caribou tag, or you can split it if you want. And then there's no difference between resident and non-resident allotment too. So it's super, super fair. You don't have to worry about points, preference points or point creep. I think there is maybe one tag now where the allotment's a little bit different and that might be like a muskox or bison uh, or something special. But for the for the most part, the draw tags are are open for anybody and it's, it's fair. Uh, I know Alaskans think that we should be entitled to more of an advantage because we, we endure all the weather and everything up here, but you know, it is fair and it's nice that we haven't gone to a point system. So those sort of things we don't have to worry about. As a non-resident, now's the time to take advantage of hunting opportunities. If you're looking to hunt somewhere else, now's the time. Uh, the rules are changing. As popular grow, you know, as non-residents, it gets harder and harder to get a tag. And it only takes, you know, one year for the system to completely change and lock out some right. of that opportunity you've been researching for the last couple of years. So if it's on your mind and you got the means to do it, feel froggy and jump, I say. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's really no reason not to. And I think you do have to have to have to have a little bit of foresight. So if you put in for some of these tags, be saving your money. So if you do end up drawing that doll sheep tag, um, or you do end up drawing, you know, some other epic tag that requires a guide, be saving for it. So in case you do draw, you can actually do it. And if you do have the money, and as I said before, if you if you do have the money, you're saved up and you're prepared to go and you don't draw, you can still go. And just having a little foresight and plan on. I think a lot of people use that as an excuse to not go. Um, They didn't think they'd draw and then they don't have the money together and then they drew and then they don't end up using the ticket. But you might as well use the ticket and be prepared to to make make it happen. Yeah, for sure. If you don't use it, I mean, you're basically just stealing the opportunity from someone else. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Because in Alaska, they don't have a where... They, it's not a buyback or they're a, like give it to the next person or donate it or anything like that, which I, I think one of the reasons might be just if there are five tags for this mountain goat tag or whatever it is and someone doesn't use it, it's just great because, you know, it might help with the carrying capacity or, you know, maybe down the road if that happens more and more and more, maybe they're able to add another tag or two down the road. Um yeah, it is a lost opportunity. Some people wish that it would maybe go to an Alaskan or some, but, you know, it is what it is and it's, it's, it's pretty good. So sometimes when you try to tweak things or change things, you end up making them worse. So I think it's pretty good at the way it is now. Yeah. Logistically for a fishing game office, especially in Alaska, that's spread out so wide, trying to reissue a tag is a giant headache. Right. Let's talk about the Southeast Alaska. I know um, when I hear Southeast, I'm thinking wet coastal and, and big black bears. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunities uh, here in Southeast. It's, it's on the map. Outdoor life started coming up in the late nineties, early two thousands. So it's kind of been on the map since then. We've seen a lot more traffic coming in through Ketchikan, going to Prince of Wales, whatnot. Uh, Randy Newberg has done some filming up here. Steve Renella, of course, has the shack on Prince of Wales. And so it's getting a lot of attention, but still a lot of nice black bears in the area. A lot of good opportunities for deer. Because it is on the map, the experiences end up being maybe a little bit less isolated than people would want. You think that if you're going to fly into Ketchikan and you're going to do a fly out to a remote lake, uh, that you're going to have that lake to yourself, but there's only so many lakes that be, can be flown into. Um, so you might not be the first person that's flown into that lake that year. Um, there might be, you know, two people get flown into the lake or two different uh, parties flown into the lake. So you do have the potential to, to have to share it. The transporters down here in Southeast Alaska are a lot more numerous. If you're doing like a caribou hunt out North, there might only be one or two providers. And I know that there's a, a transporter in 
Fairbanks that has gone to a draw themselves. So if you do happen to draw uh, your sheep tag and you want to fly in with this business, you put your name into a cup and they then draw who they're going to be able to fly out to do the hunt, which is really tough. That's one of the huge things. If you end up drawing a tag up north for doll sheep or caribou flyouts, you got to get on the transport almost immediately to make sure that you can get flown out. Um, Southeast Alaska does a lot of flight seeing tours for cruise ships. So there's a lot of available float planes and a lot of businesses that do flyouts, and uh, you can charter them to fly into the lakes. So because there's more available planes, fewer lakes can be not quite as pristine and lonely as you might uh, want it to be if you're flying in for black-tailed deer. That said, it's not going to be you know like hunting Wyoming or something like that. Uh, I've been on a couple of those hunts, and you see a lot of orange uh, when you're when you're out there. But um, yeah, so that's just one thing to think about if you do want to come to Southeast Alaska and you're looking to get away from people. Look for a, look to fly out and then ask around about whether or not they know other people have been flown into these lakes. What's the chances of being able to get out weather-wise? Some of these lakes are kind of, you get flown in and the weather can be really temperamental, can be tough to get flown back out. So um, just good questions to think about and ask uh, for black-tailed deer in the Alpine. As far as bear goes, you can get on the road system on Prince of Wales, but uh, most of it, you're going to be going to uh, estuaries and where uh, and tidal flats. So look for places that could have some, some boat rentals. And there are some areas that have over-the-counter tags that you can get over-the-counter tag and they have some boat rentals. So you can do a, kind of a DIY type thing for that. So there's some logistical things you have to, to consider, but it's definitely doable, definitely available, and you can have a really good experience. I think anytime you talk Alaska, you know, one of the things that should first come to your mind is logistics. I mean, just trying to get somewhere and then get all the stuff that you need and be prepared to stay there. Circling back to deer, you know, I know you talked that could be a lot of people there, but there's a lot of deer there. Yeah. I mean, the population goes up and down, but a lot, you know, when we're talking sick of blacktails, we're talking a big population. I mean, the deer are pretty small, but there's quite a few of them. Yeah, it's it's really nice. There, there have been some people on both ends of that. They come up here and they expect like a really big masher buck, a four by four is kind of how we measure. Some people really get into inches and whatnot, but you're looking for a nice four by four with eye guards. That's kind of an indication that you got a really nice buck or a three by three. So some people get flown into these lakes and shooting a deer isn't a big problem. It's just getting that magnum or that large, that large deer, that trophy buck that people sometimes have to sort through a little bit. You know, filling the tag doesn't tend to be a huge issue. It's just expectations. If you want a great experience, you're going to fly out to a remote lake, you're going to see some deer. It's going to be awesome. So as long as you're not heartbroken, if you don't get a trophy, it's going to be an awesome experience. I've never been up in the high country there in the Alpine, but I mean, just the videos you watch, it's just beautiful. In yeah. years past, you know, as a non-resident, you could have multiple deer tags. So people typically, you know, shot a nice one and then held out to try and find a big one. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of places now where they've limited the number of tags that you can get as a non-resident, maybe to one. So now you're limited to just looking for that deer to, that's going to, you know, put the exclamation on your Alaska trip. That was Kodiak. Kodiak, uh, Kodiak changed their regulations. Um, so now uh, it's down to one which uh, a lot of people were obviously upset about, but Kodiak was really getting a whole lot of traffic and a whole lot of pressure, very well known, very easy. It was kind of seen as an introductory type hunt and a lot easier. You do have to deal with brown bears, which you don't in, in a lot of the southern, southeast Alaska areas, but it's just a lot more dense and forested 
and then you get to the alpine and break out. So where a Kodiak is super, super brushy, there's a lot of brush, you really have an opportunity to glass long distances, especially during this time. A lot of people still go up in uh, late September, October, and even into November because you can see a lot more, whereas um, Southeast Alaska is a lot more dense and it's a lot more difficult to pick out these these deer during rut because you can't just glass them up and make a move. You really got to depend on knowing the area or uh, them coming to the call. Alpine, it's fairly easy. I was just going to say for non-residents, you know, the deer tag's only $300. So it's, as non-resident tags go, fairly economical. Yeah. Getting to Alaska and then getting to where you want to hunt is the hard part about hunting Alaska, right? Yeah, for sure. And again, it's it's experience. When my buddy and I went uh, did the Hall Road archery hunt for caribou, it was kind of underwhelming uh, because the, the herd hadn't congealed and hadn't really started moving up. And so we actually saw more out-of-state hunters than we actually saw caribou because it was a little early in the season. And we did see a lot of out-of-state hunters and then some local hunters too. So we really didn't have that supreme uh, wilderness, but the experience in itself. So if we just isolated the hunting part, it could be a hunt that I would deem underwhelming. But when you think about the entire experience and renting a truck in Fairbanks and driving up over uh, the Brooks Range, and it's just such an unbelievable experience. People will fly to Alaska just to do that part. So if you have that frame of reference and you think this is such an incredible experience, in itself. Then you add the hunt, then it just becomes a lot easier to to look at price uh, what you end up punching tag wise. It's just it's absolutely worth it and great. So even if it is a smaller deer, uh, maybe smaller antlers, uh, just to be able to do this is is great. If you can get two deer in certain areas, uh, or it's reduced to one deer in, on Kodiak, where I'm at, it's four deer. So you know, plenty of opportunity. Trying to get four deer back home would be something for for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think two is a pro- probably a pretty nice number. You can fit the fit that probably in uh, in two fish boxes, so you'll you'll be in good shape there. I've had some people talk to me about the possibility of doing both. You know, like they sometimes the habitats do coexist, and so there might be an opportunity, but uh, they tend to be a little bit uh, different terrain, especially uh, by August. There are a lot of times the the bear are closer to the creeks, and so they're down low while the deer are up high. So you're, it's either lower for the bear or higher for the deer. And then as the deer start to go into the timber in uh, in mid to late September, that tends to be when the bears might move back up for uh, berries. So um, it's not the buffet necessarily where you're up top on the mountain and you're looking at everything. It can be, I don't know, probably choosing one or the other and really going for that experience and going for deer uh, or bear might be better than trying to do a half and half of both, you know? Pretty much like any state, you know, where you can get even like a deer and an elk tag, you you need to focus on one and spend your efforts there. You try to split your your time, you could end up with nothing. I guess let's talk about. It. I mean, if you're going to come and hunt deer in the southeast, especially you know with archery equipment, and you're talking to alpine, you want to come in August. Typically, yeah. you come early, or a lot of people they do come late. They still rut late in in the southeast too, right? They're rutting in November. Yeah, my circled weekend is the last week in October. Um, and then the first week in November, that's kind of when I prefer, but there are also people who say, uh, you know, they don't even really start hunting until around the second week in November and just hit it hard for two weeks. And it does vary because Southeast Alaska is 1700 islands. So the, the rut on Prince of Wales is usually a little bit different than over here in Ketchikan area, um, as, which is different than up by Huna, Petersburg and whatnot. So kind of looking at it, it doesn't vary a whole lot, usually within a couple of weeks, but peak rut over here might be a little different than a different island. Those things are, are, are things to, to keep in mind as, as well. But yeah, the, the one month that I would say maybe not would be mid-September to mid-October tends to be kind of a dead period. Uh, you can still get high alpine and you get hard horned uh, bucks in that late August, early September, which can be a really, really fun time. But that tends to start 
encroaching on the mule deer and the uh, elk hunts down south. So uh, you tend to see a lot of people up here more for the opener August 1st or the, or the 15th, 16th, um, which is you get them in the velvet. Uh, later into that is the, is the hard horn, but then when you start dropping into the timber, it can be really hard to find and they start to not be as mobile. So mid-September to mid-October is kind of the dead period. I like to hunt through it just because why not? Late October, you start getting that rut activity. You can start getting them to, to come to the call um, and that can be a lot of fun. The Rockcast is powered by the number one GPS hunting app in the industry, Onyx Hunt. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you, and that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage, and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. And when you say come to call, you're basically talking the same as you would hunt a whitetail, rattling, grunting, that that type of calling. Never hunted whitetail, but I, I've hunted for for mule deer uh, a couple times. Yeah, for you know your grunting, calling, uh, grunt tube. Some people use those. Some people rattle, doe bleats. But uh, you know, just kind of individual preference. You can find online. Some people swear by rattling. Some people swear by um, calling. And some people. The biggest thing is how long do you wait after the call? And that's the thing that that most people are so kind of gets in your head and it gets in my head too. Like, should I have waited 10 more minutes? Some people call, they wait 10 minutes and they move on because they want to cover ground, get to the different musk eggs and try to find a deer that's in that area rather than post up in one spot and call because if nothing's responding to it, you're not going to, nothing's going to happen. So some people will sit 10 minutes and move. Other people will sit, call, wait 45 minutes, then move. So they're not moving as much not covering as much ground, but they're being more patient. Uh, some people kind of do a still hunt where they're just w- moving as, as slowly as possible through the, the transition areas. And it's it's unbelievably thick and dense up here. So it's impossible to stay totally quiet, but you just try to glide through the brush as quietly as possible and call a little bit on that transition area. Some people walk all the way out, out into the muskeg, which you're totally exposed. And the deer will bed down and they'll hang out in that transition area that's really uh, fertile. It gives them great bedding between the muskeg, which is the open bog area, and the timber. There's a lot of your, your berry bushes and uh, salal and a lot of these stunted dwarf uh, cedar trees, whatnot. So they'll bed in there because there's great protection. Very, very hard to see them. And then as soon as they get uncomfortable, they can just be gone without you ever knowing them. So some people are too loud in that area. They spook out the deer. Then they sit at the side of the muskeg 
call and nothing's there because it spooked it out. So approach to the muskeg is, is a huge concern. So if you're looking at doing a hunt here and, you, and during the rut, you're going to want to look at what people recommend for approaching to muskegs. Um, and then also how long to call, whether or not to call or rattle or use a grunt tube. Those are kind of your, your main questions and things that you want to do. That sounds like a perfect hunt for those people that are inept to hunting whitetails. When I get into places like Southeast Alaska, where the brush is super thick, you know, I almost feel claustrophobic be closed in like that. When you're used to being in the open, open country, it's just something about it. I, I enjoy it to a certain extent, but yeah, it makes me uncomfortable at first. It's just you know, it's not something that I'm used to. Yeah. It's super frustrating too, because when you, you're trying to be as quiet as possible, but everything is making so much noise. And sometimes the, the best days to hunt are the days where it is rainy because it's going to cover your scent and it's going to cover your noise more. But on those beautiful, cold, clear days, my, my wife and I doubled up one weekend where it was in the upper thirties and totally clear. But man, it's so stinking loud and you're just so frustrated when you're trying to be quiet, but you're not. You just think that everything's spooked out. So staying committed and staying focused. And that's what we did. We're able to, um, I called very quietly and one came in, so she shot it. And then the next day it was the same thing. Just staying focused. You're in that claustrophobic brush area and you feel like an elephant and you're you're kind of frustrated that it just nothing's going to be here. I just spooked them all out, but just taking a breath, being as quiet as possible being as calm as possible, trusting the process. And then uh, we sat and called and within seconds, one emerged and was just assaulting this little cedar tree. So I shot it. So we both got deer, but just staying focused. Like that was, that ended up being the key. It was super loud, but stay focused, no deers there and, and concentrate. What would you say a mature deer weighs for Sika? If you end up getting 55, 60 pounds of, of meat, that's a, that's a nice buck. Um, sometimes you can get 65, 70 uh, pounds of meat from the buck. So that's, uh, kind of what you're, what you're hoping for. But, you know, sometimes depending on time of year, depending on, you know, it doesn't really coincide with, with antler size. Of course, sometimes you get like a, just a nice trophy buck antler wise, but just kind of average, uh, body wise. Other times you get like these just huge body wise, uh, bucks that don't have much up top, but like you're more than happy to shoot it because you're getting a lot more meat. So 40 to 45 pounds of meat is is about average. I'd love to have you come back on maybe and do like a segment of, yeah. you know, what would I take? What are the necessities to come here? You know, for example, fire starting, you know, what do I need? That's something that I don't yeah. even think about really, right? Like Vaseline and a cotton ball and I can burn the whole damn forest down, right? Like Th that's what we use for the starter, but it's just that initial tinder because that stuff is so stinking wet. Um, even if it's been a couple of days, like it just totally saturated, doesn't get uh, dried out because it's always humid. So the, the cotton balls and the Vaseline, we put them in uh, like an egg carton and then dip them in uh, wax. So that's uh, that's a pretty good starter there. But then it's just that next level. Once that's burned, do you have enough of that other stuff burnt so that uh, you can create some coals and then build on that? And it's just this constant, you know, trying to feed it that, uh, that ends up being important. Came caribou hunting, you know, we've collected dicks along the river or whatever, but I mean, it just smoked. I mean, it, it burnt a little bit, but I mean, it was more smoked than there was flame. No doubt about that. So yeah, no enthusiasm. Yeah. It just pouts and just smokes and that's about it. You got us all intrigued now, Jeff, about coming up there and hunting some Sitka uh, blacktails. Now we're interested. We know it. the cost is the right. What logistically, what do we need to do? What's the next step now? Once you decide that you want to hunt uh, Sitka blacktail deer, you have to look at uh, where you want to fly into Alaska Airlines. Um, 
And then if you fly into that town, it's kind of like your hub. You can fly out from there or you can look for a rental and get on the road system. So um, if you want to have a road system hunt, you can do that. Uh, so look into rentals. If uh, you want to go Alpine fly out, then look for uh, for that. But if Juno has opportunities, uh, Huna, Sitka, Ketchikan, uh, Wrangell, Petersburg, everywhere that Alaska Airlines flies is an opportunity for that to be kind of your the spot that you then fly out of because there's a uh, Sitka Black deer all around. So choose your hub, uh, choose the lake that you want to fly into if you want to go alpine wise um, or get on the road system if it's more of a rut type uh, type situation there. But there's opportunities in all of them. It's just a matter of whether or not you're going to be able to afford the fly out, whether or not you're getting on the road system and can afford a, a rental. Yeah, I think once you make your decision of where you want to go, then you're going to have the same complications anywhere. It's how do you get to the Alpine, what looks good, and what's the access. So choose your hub, choose your mountain, how to get there. It's going to be the same question no matter where you choose in Southeast. Yeah. And just so people don't know, when you say get to the Alpine, you know, that that's a struggle within itself. You're, you got to break a lot of brush typically and, mm-hmm. and work your way through plants that just kind of claw at you and try and tear your clothes up, go nearly vertical as you as you climb in, in the wet mud. Yeah, and that's that's the big thing. The, the advantage to flying out into an alpine lake or something that's pretty close in the alpine is that it's going to make the hiking a lot easier. Um, my wife and I did a mountain goat hunt, and we had to hike in from the ocean, which is brutal. So you're doing all that um, elevation gain through the timber, through the everything, and it's just horrible to get up top there. Then you start hunting. So flying out into a lake that puts you within a couple hundred feet of alpine or in the alpine is definitely ideal. But any lake that you have scouted has probably been scouted by someone else. So you're gonna have to call a transporter in the area, ask them if they can get into that lake and ask them, hey, is this a is this a viable lake? Is this a good option? You can also call biologists and say, hey, I'm thinking about going into this lake. Is this a good plan? Rather than call a biologist and say, hey, where should I hunt? Say, I'm thinking about flying to this island, going into this lake out of this town. Am I on track? What would you recommend? Sounds like a you got to do your share of research if you want to get away from the crowd. And even if you do do your research, you might have a few people that are just as smart as you. <laughs> no worries there. I like to hunt with smart people. Yeah. In your opinion, do you save a day of travel to, to go fishing? Um. You might as well. I think one of the cool things about the experience as a whole, if you go to Alaska and you only see this lake or this cabin or this stretch of whatever, then I know you're kind of missing out on a, on a cool element of it. So if you're able to save a day and go fishing or to just see the town, you know, people come up here on cruises just to see the culture and who are the type of, who are the type of people who stay here year round, you know, meet the type of kid who's a kayak guide as a, as a 15 year old or a 16 year old, you know, just that, that cool cultural experience, which is really fun. And that's something that I do when I hunt down South, it's cool to just meet the people who live in that community, who are working at these stores, who's making their breakfast burritos. So I think even if you don't fish, just spending a day in town to just see what it's all about, I think is a really cool thing to do. So you could fish if you wanted to in these communities. Uh, you have to book advance for charters. There's not like a lot of people waiting at the dock for charters. They try to get stuff booked up well in advance. So if you do want to add a day or two for fishing, definitely do it. But most people are booked up with their own. They have like their charter boat and they have their own guests that they take out. There's not freelance people kind of waiting at the dock for you. So you, if you want to do that plan well in advance, um, but yeah, the whole, that's just a great part of the experience is to meet the people and, and just see what it's all about year round. I definitely recommend that. Even if you're not going to fish, just have a day, either if you get 
fogged in or not or just plan that but also plan a day to, to maybe enjoy town a little bit all right jeff thank you i for sure want to learn more about southeast alaska it sounds like a amazing place to live but for sure a bucket list place to visit and then we'll have you back on the podcast we'll talk about it more in the upcoming year maybe sounds we good. can uh pick your brain a little bit more and get it more on track i make my way up there sounds good thanks for having me on i appreciate it if you want to get a hold of jeff you can find him on rockslide at alaska lund and he's also on Instagram under the same name, Alaska Lund. All right, moving on to reviews. We have Jared Bloomgren talk about the ACAC Climax 5400 backpack. Welcome, Jared. Hey, thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. So I know that they've uh, had a couple generations of this pack. Um, why don't you tell us about their newest one? So this new one, it's the Climax 5400, a substantially larger pack than their, their original Alpha 3200 that they first came out with. And, you know, it's like with anything, uh, you know, a new company steps in and they introduce a pack and that Alpha 3200, when it first came out, I got a hold of those and there was a few issues with that pack, right? To be expected. Uh, But what the company did, which is really amazing to me, is they took that same pack, they listened to the end users, they had guys reviewing it and given suggestions they took that same pack and pushed out a gen 2 in a fairly short amount of time and addressed from what i understood all of those issues and i seen that in the gen 2 pack so when i come out to this new uh, climax 5400 i kind of had a feeling the first run of this pack would be good right because they already got worked out the quirks on their first pack that they did so i expected that this new 5400 would come out and with all of those issues already addressed and it was pretty interesting you know a a 5400 cubic inch pack that's a big pack and i put this thing to the test on uh, elk hunts in montana this year and i had that thing loaded down with more weight than what i should have been carrying in the first place but i really wanted to test it i bivvied um packed way in to the back country and i stayed it carried everything just fine. I, I love the comfort of the pack. It, 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 it just the adjustability. I have a short torso and the pack was very adjustable. It fit well. So right off the bat, it was a hit with me. Then you start getting into, you know, four or five days of using the pack and, and all the options that go along with this pack, you know, it's got different modes. You can break down the pack and use, take the lid off and just have a day pack, or you can, take the carbon fiber frame off and you have that which has a meat shelf and you can attach the the lid the day pack to it to make uh, another pack or you can take just the carbon fiber frame to do pack outs there's a lot of different versatility there and the versatility on this hunt that i took that pack on you know i packed in there with everything on my back broke it down set up camp and i left from there and took off and hunted elk from that camp with the small pack and it's nice to be able to do that with one pack and not have to carry a giant pack everywhere you go so this new pack is built great it's it's built rugged it stood up to the test of time from what i put it through and i packed out an elk with the thing and you know they boast up to saying it'll handle 150 pounds me myself i'll never carry that much weight in a pack but i'm i'm fairly certain it, it could probably do it 
but you know, it, there's a few minor things that can maybe be changed on it, but not to say it could have been the way I was packing it as well. You pursue them, you cherish them, and now it's time to protect them. This is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer, our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. Yeah, so this is a 500D Cordura uh, pack material and then uh, YKK zippers. Yep, the YKK zippers, which they went and they did, uh, um, I wouldn't say waterproof, but weatherproof type zippers on them. Uh, the bottom six inches of the pack is waterproof. I've had packs in the past, you know, you set them down and it's wet or there's snow, then it soaks up the moisture, it gets inside the pack. So that bottom six inches with a rain cover, um, very beneficial. It kept my stuff dry. Uh, it's got a, little, a lot of different features in it, different small packs within the pack. Uh, and you can attach things to it all over. It's got the rifle or bow carrier on it, quick release on the side. Uh, a lot of cool features with this pack. Yeah, one of the innovative features you kind of hit on was the adjustable lumbar pad. You could add or subtract padding to get that to fit just right, depending on uh, the curve of your back and how you wanted it to set. Yeah, the adjustability, like I said, in the lumbar area, the belt, the shoulder strap, all of that. I was really surprised by the adjustability and the locations you can change that on the carbon fiber frame to get it to fit you just right. And then is this a fully zippered, like a front loading pack or a top loading pack or, or how's that layout? It can be either or. Yep, you got two different access points on it. Oh, nice. All right. If anybody wants to find you, where can they find you at, Jared? Um, on rockslide.com. Uh, several articles on there, of course, throughout the course of my tenure since it's been out. All right, Jared, what's your Instagram? Uh, you can find me at Jared underscore Bloomgren or on Facebook through my personal account, Jared Bloomgren or Bloomgren's Trigger Addiction on Facebook as well. All right. I appreciate you coming on and taking some time for us there. Thank you. I appreciate the time that you spent with me as well and look forward to more. In today's How for Wildlife Minute, we want to highlight the efforts to get a Louisiana bear season. Growing concentration of black bears have become a concern as they lead to economic losses and reduced hunting opportunities in some areas. The proposed hunting season is seen as a step towards responsible wildlife management and a remedy to the increased bear encounters across the state. Click the link to learn more about How for Wildlife. The Boone and Crockett Board of Directors passed a new position statement supporting the delisting of recovered bear and grizzly bear populations and resuming state management and oversight of the two species. Keeping the species at no risk of extinction listed under the Endangered Species Act misuses the ESA, wastes the resources of the Endangered Species Act program that is needed for other species, impedes conservation and erodes support of the Endangered Species Act.
The Boone and Crockett Club maintains that state and tribal wildlife agencies have the expertise and the capacity to successfully manage recovered wolves and grizzlies and refine their management policies and ensure populations remain robust and mitigate any new challenges that may arise. These agencies and their associated commissioners are in the best position to address the effects on wildlife and people from wolf and grizzly conflicts. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes. Until next time, this has been Sam Weaver.